0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Hear now these words from the 72nd Psalm. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. May he live while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on mown grass, like waters that uh, shower the earth. In his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound until the moon is no more. May the kings of Tarshish and of the isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations give him service. For he delivers the needy when they call, the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. And saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Well this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, now I'd like to invite children who would like to go to Godly Play uh, to meet. Yes or Kay? Yeah, Sarah? Yes, Sarah. Okay. good. She's back. You all want to go?
1: Our second lesson, also the lectionary for today, comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Here again God's word. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened. God, from this old story, speak to us a new message today that we might be new people ready to follow you when we leave this place. In Christ's name, amen. As I said a few minutes ago, this morning we celebrate Epiphany. It's Epiphany Sunday. And the word epiphany means revelation. So this is the day in the church calendar each year when we mark that our new Savior has been revealed this time to the wise men. It's the next chapter of the Christmas story, so to speak. It didn't end last week. But you do remember just over a week ago on Christmas, the experience of wonder and awe, the feeling of standing at the manger, amazed that this thing has happened, that the divine would break into history as a baby, so humbly and for us. Now, at Epiphany, we start to see the new world that baby brings. Already, even while Jesus is still a little child, something new is happening. The birth of our Lord shifts power in the world, away from violence and chaos, and toward joy and justice. Epiphany Sunday falls early this year. The actual day of Epiphany is January 6th. But here we are on the second, just after we've flipped our calendars, or probably for most of us, our phones did it for us and flipped straight to a new year. I don't know about you, but I hear lots of buzz in these days about new. It feels like the word new is everywhere. Even the issue of our son's Boy Scout magazine that just came in the mail, two little children, mind you, had a cover that said, New Year, New You. I guess we want even our kids to be better in the new year. This is why as we listen to the buzz around us, we hear so much hope that 2022 will be better than 2021. And if you think back, we also hoped so, so much that 2021 would be better than 2020. None of us thought we'd be here at the beginning of a third calendar year fighting a pandemic especially in the middle of a surge of cases. And more than anything, we want this new year to actually feel new. (laughs) We wanna feel different. And we wanna feel that the world is different around us. That's why we mark this time. That's why there's so much emphasis on things like New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions are expressions of our hope, our hope that things can be different and better in our health, in our relationships, in our work. So we pledge to eat better, to exercise more, to have that hard conversation we've been putting off, to use our phones less, and to focus more on the people we love. Thank you for your honest nod. I had to make that resolution yesterday myself. To read more good books, to commit more time, to service, to faith, to things that give us meaning, Every single thing we resolve to do in a new year is an expression of hope. Just yesterday, our family sat at our dinner table, and even the meal we were eating was hopeful. We ate black-eyed peas and Hoppin' and John and collard greens out of hope. And we made a lot of New Year's resolutions, maybe too many. Y'all pray for us. We were talking about how this tradition got started, and I didn't really know, so I looked it up. And I found such interesting things in the history of New Year's resolutions. As it turns out, this urge to be new is about as old as we could imagine. Some 4,000 years ago, ancient Babylonians had a festival to mark a new harvest year. But instead of just planting new crops, they also made promises to pay their debts, to mend their relationships, to return anything they had borrowed from someone. Skip forward a couple thousand years, Roman Emperor Julius Caesar moved the beginning of the calendar year to what we know as January 1, yesterday, and this month, January, was named after Janus, the two-faced God who looks both backward and forward. So even back then, Roman citizens looked back at the prior year and made promises to be better in the new one. Early Christians did the same thing, but called it confession, so looked back and confessed what they needed to change and resolved to behave differently in the new year. Finally, in 1740, John Wesley, the father of Methodism, rooted this practice in an actual worship service. It was held on either New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, and it was a service of covenant renewal where Christians gathered to renew their promises to God to start a new year in right relationship with their Lord. I was amazed to learn all that. If anything, this long history tells us that humans have always felt a deep need for a new start. It's good. It's good to look back and be honest about what we need to change. But also... What's at stake for us as Christians at Epiphany is something bigger than habits. It's more than trying to lose a few pounds or trying to rebalance our work days. Our hope is for a new world. Our two scriptures for today show us how a new world will come with the birth of a new kind of king. Matthew's gospel paints a picture for us of the king who was in power when Jesus was born, Herod the Great. He's one of six Herods named in the New Testament, and he's vicious. He's a brutal king. He serves the Roman Empire after a few generations of his family paying people off to get him that status, and he had a reputation for being especially cruel. In fact, he's the opposite of the kind of king we just heard about as Rob read from Psalm 72, Herod oppresses the weak and the needy. He's a paranoid tyrant who uses violence to keep his power, even sacrificing innocent lives. So Psalm 72 gives us the picture of the new kind of king we are all hoping for, one who's coming to judge with righteousness and bring justice, who delivers the needy and lifts up the poor and has pity on the weak, who doesn't come to throw away innocent lives, but comes to save them. Human powers, the Herods of history, will fall before this new king. He doesn't oppress. Life is precious in his sight, and in his days, peace will abound. As we meet the wise men in this next chapter of our Christmas story, they're looking to the heavens for something new. For a sign of the kind of shift in the cosmos that Psalm 72 is talking about, maybe just as we have been doing the last couple of days, as we make resolutions, and as we hope upon hope that the world is being changed. Matthew, in his gospel, doesn't give us a whole lot of detail to move us from the manger to this group of wise men. He just says that sometime after Jesus was born, they came from the east. We don't know how long or how long the journey took, and we don't even know too much about who they were. Tradition has decided that there were three of them, although you notice that detail is not included in Scripture. And because they brought such expensive and rare gifts, we usually think they must have been wealthy, even royal. We picture them as kings on camels or coming down this aisle in velvet, holding a gold box of some kind, usually. But they were probably astrologers, maybe Zoroastrian priests, who were called wise here in the gospel because they were seekers. They were people who looked to the heavens for signs of something new. What we do know about them is that they were Gentiles. They would not have known the Hebrew scriptures or prophecy, They were not King Herod's subjects. They were not Israelites. They were outsiders traveling to pay their respects to a new foreign king, which makes them really unlikely messengers. It's unusual for them to have been the ones to tell King Herod that Jesus was born. And when they do, as you heard, they send him scrambling. He's afraid and he's ready to do anything, even horrible things to keep his power. When Herod hears that there's a new king, he knows his power is threatened. He must have been furious. I bet he was pacing in the palace, yelling at people and throwing things and sitting and fuming, livid that a new king could have snuck up on him. Born there in his own kingdom under his watch. So he plots. He plots to do whatever it will take To keep his throne. And when his smart palace people, the priests and the theologians, find the place in prophecy that says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, he decides that all the children around Bethlehem, two years old and younger, must be killed. Today's reading stops at verse 12, but if we were to read on, we would hear that violent and unthinkable part of this story. The slaughter of the innocents. Jesus is spared that fate only because of a vision from an angel telling his parents, Mary and Joseph, to flee and to hide him until Herod dies. But the plot Herod sets in motion right as the wise men set off to find Jesus, it will sacrifice countless innocent lives. The wise men don't know that yet, of course. They think they're just setting out to pay respect to a new king and that Herod will come and join them later. They follow the star all the way to Bethlehem, and when they see that they've made it to the place, Matthew tells us that they are overwhelmed with joy, consumed with joy. Picture it. There's no palace there. There's no throne, there's no grand announcement, there's no ceremony, presentation of visiting dignitaries. After traveling so far, all they find is a simple place and a child and his mother. And yet, they are overcome with joy. They know. Somehow, with certainty in that moment, they know that this is a new kind of king. Even though he's a child... And there's nothing about this that looks royal. They are compelled to kneel down and to give him their extravagant gifts. Surely those fancy things were out of place there. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we know Jesus didn't require that kind of gift anyway. But in that moment, these wise men give their new Lord the very best they have. And more important... Without anyone forcing them or threatening them or coercing them, they also give Jesus their loyalty. These outsiders, these people who were not part of the Jewish community, are so moved when they meet the divine that they kneel down and worship him. This is the great gospel surprise. The world has a new kind of king, and when he's revealed to us, we are changed forever. This king, Jesus, will not build up power for himself or sit on a throne or make a fortune or create a military. He won't lead by threat or violence. He will not humiliate people who do not stroke his ego. He will not pit people against each other for his own benefit. This is a totally different kind of king, a kind Herod can't even imagine because it is so different from he I like the way Tom Long, the great preacher, describes this moment. Whenever the true nature of the gospel is understood by the powers that be, all swaggering despots turn fearful. The humble birth of the Christ child shakes the foundation of the world and announces the fall of the mighty. This moment is a new start for the whole world. And the wise men know it. Somewhere in this encounter, they understand that they've been duped by Herod, and they know that if they go back and report to him, they will be part of his paranoid and violent plan. And now that they've worshipped the Christ, they cannot play any part in Herod's plans. When the wise men saw the star, they could do nothing but follow. When they reached Bethlehem, they could do nothing but kneel and worship. Once they've met Christ our Lord, they are filled with joy, and they can no longer obey a tyrant. So they walk another road, literally. They go home a different way. They don't go back to Herod. They change their travel plans. But they change course in another way, too. By disobeying Herod, they refuse to give any power to this force of violence. They shift their allegiance to a new king, one who's come to replace oppression with justice and violence with peace. I heard a story this week of another who was so filled with Christ's joy that he refused to give any power to hate and violence. Our world lost a great light this week with the death of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, a man who demonstrated with his life that God's joy and God's justice must never be separated. When Joel and I lived in South Africa in 2002, we saw firsthand the impact of Bishop Tutu's ministry in that country where power had been held by violence and with hate for so long. I didn't get the chance to know Bishop Tutu personally. I've loved seeing some reflections from folks who did this week. But his story is one of the epiphany of the new life we find when we meet Christ. And I've loved learning even more about him as people remembered him this week. One story stood out in particular. Jim Wallace writes it about a day, about 10 years before Nelson Mandela would be elected president of South Africa. Mandela was still in prison and apartheid was still government policy but religious leaders and political leaders and people were fighting against that system of apartheid. Bishop Tutu himself had been arrested and held in prison as the government tried to intimidate him and tamp down on protests, but he would not be deterred. He was released from prison, and an anti-apartheid rally was planned in Cape Town, and the South African security forces shut it down by force. So what did Bishop Tutu do? He held a church service, of course. Hundreds of police officers surrounded St. George's Cathedral in Cape Town to try to intimidate Bishop Tutu and the worshipers who had gathered there. And they even came into the church and stood along the sides of the sanctuary. Maybe you can picture what that would feel like for us sitting in this room to have force shown surrounding us as we worshiped. This was the days before cell phones, so they carried tape recorders. Y'all remember that there were tape recorders once upon a time? And they carried notepads, and they took down every word that Bishop Tutu said, planning to use his own words against him later. Jim Wallace was there and was fearful about what was about to happen. He writes this, Desmond Tutu stopped preaching, And just looked at the intruders as they lined the walls of his cathedral. After meeting their eyes with his in a steely gaze, the church leader acknowledged their power. He said to them, You are powerful, very powerful, but I serve a God who cannot be mocked. Then Archbishop Desmond Tutu told the representatives of South African apartheid, Since you have already lost, I invite you today to come and join the winning side." He said it with a smile, an enticing warmth in his invitation, but with a clarity and a boldness that took everyone's breath away, the congregation's response was electric. The crowd was literally transformed by the bishop's challenge to power, from a cowering fear of the heavily armed security forces that surrounded the cathedral and greatly outnumbered the worshipers there, they leapt to their feet, shouted the praises of God, and began dancing. What is it about dancing that enacts and embodies the spirit of hope? Wallace says that they danced out of the cathedral to meet the awaiting police and military forces of apartheid who hardly expected a confrontation with dancing worshipers. Not knowing what else to do, the police backed up to provide the space for the people of faith to dance for freedom in the streets of South Africa. Friends, because Bishop Tutu knew Christ our Lord, he could not and would not give any power to the Herod of his day, a racist and violent system of government. He allowed himself to be so overcome with the joy of our Lord that he led a life that showed others a new way. This epiphany, we still find ourselves faced with chaos and violence. We see it in the world all around us. We still have to wade through competing claims for authority, still have to make decisions about whom we will obey, what roads we will travel, whether we will stand up to abuses of power, refuse to be pitted against one another, and deny hate any authority in our lives. But we have been on the Christmas journey too. We've seen the star and can follow. We've traveled to Bethlehem and can kneel in worship. We've met Christ our Lord, who came to replace the power of violence and chaos and hate and we can be so filled with his joy that we will work for his justice. This January 2nd, our question is, what new start will we make? Amen.
0: Friends, I invite you to rise in body or in spirit and join me in confessing what it is we believe about this different type of king by using the ancient words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. still in the pandemic, so we're not passing plates these days, but we are still taking up an offering, and we do appreciate uh, so much the the faithfulness of this congregation uh, to continue to support the ministries of our church. Give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let us now return to God the offerings of our lives and the gifts of the earth.